Informed Thinker podcast. I'm your host, Kobe Braden, and uh, this podcast really is about uh, exposing cults and uh, heresies um, and religious movements um, that are affecting evangelical Christians. Uh, I'm a former cult member myself. Uh, I was from the uh, Shepherd's Chapel cult out of Gravit, Arkansas, and you can learn more about them on my blog at reformedthinker.blogspot.com. And tonight, I really want to get into the uh, Serpent Seed and Kenite Doctrine that's taught by Shepherd's Chapel. Uh, One of the defining false doctrines of Shepherd's Chapel is their twist on the Serpent Seed heresy. Um, And if you get their introductory CD called The Mark of the Beast, and you can go to their website and order that, they provide that free, you'll be introduced to their Kenite Doctrine. Um, they also have several other studies that you can look into their view. Uh, Serpent Seed, that's number 30461. Uh, Genesis chapters 1 through 6, that's their study numbers 30146. And their Kenites study series, which is number 30436. So you can order those through the chapel and get a definition from their point of view. Um, so, what is the doctrine of the Kenite? Well, simply put, Shepherd's Chapel teaches that Eve had sex with Satan. Uh, Eve then conceived and gave birth to Cain, and Cain's biological father was Satan. Uh, Cain's offspring are what the Old Testament identifies by the term Kenite. This is what Shepherd's Chapel teaches. Uh, Jesus, in the New Testament, identifies the scribes and Pharisees as these same literal sons of Cain. Uh, Kenites are in the world today, claiming to be Jews. Uh, behind the scenes they control the whole world what uh, Shepherd's Chapel will often call the four hidden dynasties uh, political, religious, economic, and the education industries Uh, utilizing their control of these four hidden dynasties uh, the Kenites will bring about the one world system Uh, only churches that teach the true identity of the Kenites hold the key of David, know the truth and will not be deceived in the end times so, uh, that's, that's what uh, Shepherd's Chapel teaches on the Kenites. Can any of that be substantiated from the Bible? Shepherd's Chapel does, of course, try to defend these beliefs by selectively utilizing Scripture. And we'll examine some of these proofs and show that the doctrine of the Kenite cannot hold to closer scrutiny. Uh, in reality, the whole doctrine hinges on the interpretation of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, but if you just... Or you'll see through a straightforward reading of Genesis chapter three that there is not that it is not describing a sexual encounter with Satan and Eve, but that's what Shepherd's Chapel teaches. So I want to read real quick Genesis three, verses three through six. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Shepherd's Chapel claims that this eating of the fruit is is, is uh, is an analogy for sex. Uh, in their view. They claim that this is describing a sexual encounter between Satan and Eve. 
Uh, I suppose Adam as well, since he took of the fruit also. Uh, but there are some serious problems with his interpretation. Uh, the serpent is using what God said in Genesis chapter 2. So let's read Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And that's Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Now, if we take this eating of the fruit of the tree as an analogy for sex, which is what the whole Shepherd's Chapel view hinges on that interpretation, then you would have to be you'd have to be forced to conclude that God has given Adam permission to have sex with anything in the garden. In other words, if because God gave Adam permission to eat of any tree of the garden, except the knowledge of good and evil. So if it's talking about sex in Genesis chapter 3. Why is it not talking about sex in Genesis chapter 2? Where God is describing to not do it with the tree of knowledge and good and evil, but with any other tree. And, of course, Shepherd's Chapel would say the trees are people. Uh, and that, that's what it's alluding to in those verses. But that's just not what this is talking about. That We see from the text that God has given Adam permission to literally eat of any tree of the garden that he wishes. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, however, is forbidden. Sex is simply not the topic of discussion. Even if one takes the scene in the Garden of Eden as some sort of allegory, we see that this is not even talking about sex in any sort of way. Um, you would also have to identify the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as Satan for the Shepherd's Chapel view to work. Because you got to understand, within their view, see, uh, Eve has sex with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil is Satan in the Shepherd's Chapel view. The problem is Satan is not identified as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but as the serpent. Now you can read Revelation 12, 9 for that. Um, so even if sex was in view, it's not with Satan. Uh, there are other problems as well if you take a look at Genesis 3, 17. Uh, Genesis 3, 17 reads, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So we have read in Genesis chapter 2 verse 16 that God gave permission for Adam to eat of any tree. Now that Adam has sinned in eating the forbidden fruit, God curses the ground. Since he ate the fruit, he was not allowed to eat. Adam will, will have to work hard for his food from now on. Uh, we see how the analogy of this eating the fruit equals sex simply doesn't work because that's not the point God is making in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. We see that it is literally talking about food. It's literally talking about eating and gathering in the garden of God. The most serious and heretical problem really is if you take this view of Genesis 3 describing a sexual encounter is when you get to Genesis chapter 3 verse 22. Listen to this. Then God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out with his hand, and take also the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden, to work the ground from which he was taken. Arnold Murray, in his study number 417, uh, elect, states that the tree of life is Jesus, and that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is Satan. Now, in verse 22 here, in Genesis chapter 3, 22, God states 
that eating of the tree of life brings eternal life. This verse specifically says, and take also, which means the same action that was to be done to the tree that was done to the tree of knowledge of good and evil must also be done to the tree of life in order for someone to have eternal life. Are we really to conclude if we take the Shepherd's Chapel's interpretation of Genesis chapter 3, are we really to conclude that God is talking about having sex with the tree of life instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That would mean you were sitting there saying you'd have to have sex with Jesus to have eternal life. Now, obviously, Shepherd's Chapel doesn't teach that. But if you're going to take this analogy all the way through Genesis chapter 3, you would be forced into that interpretation. It is quite obvious from reading these passages in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 that sex simply is not in view. Procreation is not in view. The scene in Genesis chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, is not describing a sexual encounter with even Satan. The point of the story in Genesis 3 is to show the disobedience of Adam and Eve, the fall of mankind, and the consequence of that disobedience. A student of Shepherd's Chapel may raise the objection in Genesis 3.15, saying that that does prove the servant seed doctrine. They will use this verse a lot. And Genesis 3.15 states, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It has been shown by reading the text by reading the text that this is uh, that it was not serpent that Eve took the fruit of, but it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So even in their own view, eating of, of the of taking this analogy of eating the fruit equals sex, it is not the serpent that Eve, that Eve was uh, was even having sex with. It it would have been the tree. So their interpretation of Genesis 3.15 wouldn't work anyway. But what we do see in Genesis 3.15 is not a... It's it's called the Proto-Evangelum. This is the first announcement of the Gospel. Uh, The serpent would be identified as Satan. You can read that in Genesis 12... or Revelation 12.9 and 22. 20 verse 2. The seed would be that that of anything that opposes the gospel in Christ. The ultimate seed of Eve would be Christ. The statement, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, would be Christ's victory over the devil, death, and the cross. Uh, at the cross. D- uh, the defeat, the victory over the devil and death at the cross where he was crucified, where Jesus was crucified. Um, so... It's not talking about a, a literal offspring of Satan and Eve at this point. Um, the serpent... I mean, read this. When you read Genesis 3.15, the enmity between the seed and the serpent and the seed of Eve, it is clearly shown that the serpent has a seed completely separate from Eve. Not coming from Eve. Eve has no part in the serpent's seed and does not give birth in any way to the serpent's seed. Um, Look, I will put enmity... Let's read Genesis 3.15 one more time. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God talking to Satan, to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, okay? The your is referring back to Satan, and her offspring, which is what? 
Eve. Now, he shall bruise your head, that would be Jesus, and you shall bruise his heel, that would be the, uh, the crucifixion. So, what, what's going on here? We have the offspring is only between the woman and this offspring of the serpent. The woman does not give birth to the serpent's quote-unquote seed because it's it's differentiating their offsprings there. So, like we said with the Proto-Evangelum, this offspring that's talking about it is not a literal offspring. It's talking about the spiritual seed that comes through Eve, which would eventually give forth to Christ. It's believers. And then the offspring of the devil, which would be unbelievers. We see this dual seed and its meaning most clearly presented in the New Testament in 1 John chapter 3, verses 8-10. through 10. So let's read that real quick. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Listen to this. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. There's the woman's seed. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. That's believers. But this is evident who are the children of God. There's the first seed there is the children of God. The believers. And who are the children of the devil. So who would be the children of the devil? Unbelievers. Not a physical, literal descendant, but a spiritual descendant. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Sinners are the ones that are the children of the devil, and believers are the children of God. That's the dual seed. That's the serpent seed, quote-unquote. It's simply unbelief and unbelievers and those that are against the gospel. It is not talking about a physical, literal seed that Satan produced with a sexual encounter with Eve. That destroys the whole arguments in the New Testament. Uh, so who was Cain's father? Remember, Shepherd's Chapel claims that Cain's father was Satan through Eve, through where he had sex with Eve and he produced Cain. And then the Kenites sprung from that. But we read in Genesis 4.1 who Cain's father is. Now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The statement, Adam knew his wife, of course, is a figure of speech for sex. Their sex is talked about. Uh, where Adam knew his wife. They had a, they consummated their marriage. We see very clearly that Adam consummated his marriage with Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. And listen to this. And the statement, and she conceived and bore Cain, comes directly after the statement, Adam knew his wife. This proves that the conception of Cain is in view, not a conception of somebody else. Cain was not conceived at some time prior to this. So, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. That is very straightforward. I know Shepherd's Trapple tries to get around this, saying that she was already conceived, and Adam simply was conceiving Seth, or uh, Abel. But that's not what the text says. The text literally says, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So... Shepherd's Chapel will try to claim in verse Genesis 4-2 that Cain and Abel were twins. Abel was born at the same time as Cain, with Cain being conceived at some prior point. 
This is already refuted again in, in verse 4.1. We show that the conception happens when Adam knew his wife. The first conception was Cain. And she bore his brother Abel uh, later. So what does it say in Genesis 4.2? And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Shepherd's Chapel claimed that this word again means to continue to do a thing. In other words, Eve continued in labor with Abel. The Hebrew word here is yakaf, and its meaning is to add, increase, or do again. Uh, there's a couple more verses you can look at in, the, in a similar context. Uh, in Genesis 30, verse 24, where the Lord, where Joseph is uh, born, and it is stated, add to me another son. So we, we see that that is something that's happening later. So this isn't where Cain and Abel are, are somehow uh, fraternal twins in, in the womb. They're simply not. The conception, the first conception was Cain by Adam. So that kind of refutes the whole serpent seed from Genesis anyway. Um, Shepherd's Chapel also will claim that Cain isn't listed in Adam's genealogy. And that's kind of how they will get around. They'll try to make some big deal about that. That somehow, since Cain isn't in Adam's genealogy, then Cain couldn't be part of Adam's kids, <laughs> Adam's children. Um, but you've got to understand that... Cain could be included in source in Genesis 5-4 where it says Adam had other sons and daughters. More importantly though, Genesis 5 starts with Seth. So it's perfectly normal to leave out Adam and Cain. You gotta understand, both Adam and Cain are left out in Genesis 5. And that's where Shepherd's Chapel try to go to is Genesis 5 to see that Cain wasn't part of Adam's genealogy. Well, neither was Abel listed there because it starts with Seth. Genealogies in the Old Testament were often deliberately truncated to remove cursed generations, and that include those, and, and or, or included only those of note. Um, in the case of Genesis five genealogy, only those descendants leading to Noah are mentioned, because they're the only ones pertinent to the story. Now, the Bible does not list every single twig on a family tree; it doesn't need to, and so that doesn't validate the Kenite theory whatsoever. Um, if you also note in Genesis five, Abel isn't listed either, but Shepherd's Chapel won't make an argument that Abel was Adam's son. Cain's genealogy is listed separately because he is not part of the lineage of Noah. Not because he is not the literal biological son of the devil. He's not. Uh, like I said before, the genealogy starts with Seth and leaves out both Abel and Cain. Um, it has been fully shown in Genesis 3 here, if you just read it, that it's not talking about a sexual encounter. And Genesis 4.1 shows exactly who Cain's father is. So that leaves a question that we have. We, we said that this is the Kenite doctrine, according to Shepherd's Chapel. Well, what, what, where do they get this word Kenite? Um, they are listed in a few places in the... Only a few places in the Old Testament. They're never mentioned in the New Testament, but only a few places in the Old Testament. Ten times, actually, in the Old Testament. And you can do a Bible search and bring up all the verses that deal with Kenites. There very little is known in the Old Testament about them and, and nothing in the New Testament they're, they're not even quoted on um, but we do see they're never any, no, nowhere in the Old Testament or in the entire Bible are the Kenites ever identified as the descendants of Cain 
They're just not. But we do see, however, in the Old Testament, verses that do show where the Kenites come from. So let's look at Judges um, chapter 1, verse 16. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arab, Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And that's Judges 1.16. Listen. And the descendants of the Kenites, Moses' father-in-law. Okay, so... Um, Moses' wife's dad was a Kenite. Uh, came out from the Kenites. Now, Judges 4.11 also. Now, Heber the Kenite had separate... Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites. The descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses and had pitched their tent as far away as the oak of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. So we read these texts that the Kenites are descendants of Moses' father-in-law. You can read uh, Exodus 3.1. gives a little more information on that. Kenites were part of the Medianites that came out of Rechab. Um, the name Kenite is probably derived from the name of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the grandson of Seth and great-grandson of Adam. It has nothing to do with Cain. Cain's genealogy has no... Pardon that. I mean, Cain's not listed in the Kenite genealogy, and there's nothing linking the Kenites to Cain in any way. So there's no possible biological reason. Uh, well, there's no scriptural reason whatsoever to identify Kenites with Cain. And there's no basis of saying that somehow there was a sexual encounter. I mean, Genesis 3 does not mention that. So this is, again, just some doctrines that have been weaved in. They really, a lot of it came out of the identity movement and um, the Christian identity movement which is a racist group to try to make the white race better so they would say the Cain the Jews came um, from the devil and, and that's why this breeds a lot of racism uh, Shepherd's Chapel doesn't teach overt racism but their doctrines can lead people down that path and I've seen that happen I've seen a lot of people who have been involved in Shepherd's Chapel go into more racist things, uh, and that's that's very sad to see. Um, so, and, and you also got the flood to deal with as well. Um, the flood was worldwide. That's pretty obvious. And Second Peter two five states that only eight people survived the flood anyway. So there would have been no Kenites to even survive that whole time anyway. So that would have been an impossibility no matter what. So let, let's look at the New Testament. Shepherd's Chapel uses several New Testament texts to try to prove, the, prove their Kenite doctrine. One of these texts is what is commonly called the Parable of the Tares and is located in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. Shepherd's Chapel claimed that the tares, or the weeds in some translations, is the par, uh, that the tares, or the weeds, are Kenites. So let's read uh, Matthew 13, 36 through 43. Then he, then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Listen to that. This is sin and lawbreakers. It has nothing to do with genealogy. 
and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Here Jesus gives us the interpretation of the dual seed, if you want to call it that, serpent seed doctrine. The good seed is planted by the Son of Man. That's Jesus. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. And the sons of the kingdom are what? They're believers. Uh, they are called the righteous there in verse 43. The good seed are Christians, not the literal seed of Jesus. Okay, they're, they're Christians. That's really obvious from just reading this. The field and the harvest is the end of the age, which we call the judgment day. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And verse 41 identifies the seed of the devil as what? All causes of sin and all lawbreakers. So the seed of the devil is unbelievers, not the physical descendants of Cain. This is basically the exact same thing we read in 1 John 3, verses 1 through 10. Simply put, the parable of the tares describes the activity of God's kingdom in the world. Uh, the enemies of the kingdom, the weeds, will always coexist with the sons of the kingdom, the good seeds, believers. Believers and unbelievers will always be at enmity with each other throughout the age. Um, that's why you have the gospel spreading, but yet it's always being pushed against by unbelievers. But it still grows, but it gets pushed back. You, you have that tension throughout all time. Um, another thing I wanted to, if I've got time here, let me look at my time. About 30 minutes. Uh, I wanted to look at John 8.44. This is a very popular text with Shepherd's Chapel to try to prove their theory. Um, so let's read this real quick. John 8, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Uh, here we see that Shepherd's Chapel will claim that this text is teaching the literal sons of Cain, the sons of Satan, via Cain. Um, the contrast is being of the devil or being of God. Uh, Jesus is, however, speaking that the spiritual father of these Jews is the devil, not their physical father. Jesus identifies who their physical father is in just a few verses up in verse 37. Read this, John 8, 37. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. These are the exact same group of Jews that Jesus is talking about in verse 44. Jesus is identifying them as being the offspring of Abraham, not Cain. So Jesus in 8.37 is identifying who their physical father is, and in John 8.44 he identifies who their spiritual father is. And if you'll read later in this chapter, even after Jesus gets done talking about all this, in verse 56, what does he say? John 8, 56 reads like this. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. So again, when Jesus in John chapter 8 is not talking about Kenites, and I, I mean, Arnold Murray goes to this as the linchpin of his, or the, the where his, his, his text to go to. This is his go-to place to prove the that Kenites is true and Jesus taught it. But that's the whole point that Jesus was doing in John chapter 8. You have the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, claiming to be godly, claiming to be part of God's kingdom. But they weren't. Their spiritual father, even though they were abiding by all the rules and regulations of the law of Moses, they did not follow the spirit of the law. 
So their spiritual father, even though their physical father was Abraham, their spiritual father was Satan. So another place that I really want to get to, if I've got time real quick here, is um, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Shepherd's Chapel uses this a lot. But I am afraid that the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, cunning. Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 11, 3. The Greek word deceived used here now, it's beguiled in the King James, and so the King James is what Shepherd's Chapel likes to use. So beguiled there, Shepherd's Chapel claim means sexually seduced or wholly seduced. Uh, so to Shepherd's Chapel, this verse is teaching that the serpent sexually seduced Eve in the garden. But the Greek word here is expatio. Um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, pronouncing that correctly. But that's kind of, I think, the way Shepherd's Chapel pronounces it. Anyway, and that simply means to deceive. Interpreting that Greek word sexually brings problems in other passages. Um, let's read 1 Corinthians 3.18 real fast. I know I'm going real quick, but I want to try to get through some of this. But 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. The word deceive is that exact, exact same Greek word used in um, 2 Corinthians 11.3. So it, it has no sexual meaning whatsoever. And that's the thing. There are many verses, and, and I don't have time to go through them all right now, but if you'll just get a Greek concordance or something like that and look up every instance that that word is used. It's never in a sexual uh, a sexual context, ever. The word simply does not mean that. It just means to be deceived. It has no sexual context whatsoever. So that's kind of ridiculous for them to go to that argument. It does not mean that. It can't mean that. That's really literally made up. Um, and you'll see these kind of arguments really common with Shepherd's Chapel. They will take a Greek word They'll take a Strong's Concordance and try to redefine the word and meaning by twisting it to fit their doctrine. Uh, Arnold Murray claimed that he was a Greek scholar, but he wasn't. Um, he doesn't know Greek or Hebrew grammar. He doesn't know how it works. He doesn't know how the grammar works. He doesn't know how the semantic domains of, of the different words work. You can't just take a Strong's Concordance and pick a meaning, and that's what you want it to be. And because there's different verb forms, there's different noun forms, there's different grammar constructs that make a word mean what it can mean in, within context. So you can't just make it whatever you want it to do. You see this with all kind of cults like Jehovah Witness and, and Mormons and all that sort of thing. So it's, it's very, 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 I mean, it's really poor. I mean, he really has shown that he doesn't know he, doesn't, he didn't know Greek or Hebrew. He just didn't know it beyond what he could try to muddle his way through on a, on a uh, Strong's Concordance. Um, another big one, and I don't know if I'm going to have time to go through this. I'll try real fast. Another big one is Revelation 2.9 and Revelation 3.9, where Sheriff's Chapel will say, those that claim to be Jews but are not, or but are the synagogue of Satan. You see that in Revelation 2.9 and 3.9. They'll say they say they are Jews but are not. That See, right there, that's Kenites. Well, Jesus' statement, they say they are Jews and are not, is not Jesus denying their Jewish genealogy, but rather their spiritual genealogy. You have to read Romans 2, 28 and 29. It says that, 
for no one is a Jew who is merely a Jew outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly. These Jews denied the Messiah, and, the, and in those, those areas in Smyrna and Philadelphia, there was emperor worship, and there was um, strong... Uh, well, the Jews really aligned themselves with the Romans in emperor worship in those areas, and so those synagogues became a synagogue of Satan. Those Jewish synagogues were not righteous. They were claiming to be Jews. They were claiming to be believers, but they weren't. They, a, a true Jew is a believer in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with them being Kenites. Uh, so you really can't can't go that way with, with Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9. It just does not teach or promote the Kenite and serpent seed heresy whatsoever. So, you know, we've shown really from Genesis to Revelation here that, that the Kenite and serpent seed theory is not taught in the Bible. Now, we can really go into much further depth with that, and I really blew through it really fast. I know I was talking fast and trying to get through this really fast, but that's kind of an introduction to what they teach on uh, serpent seed and the Kenites. And if you go to my blog at reformthinker.blogspot.com, I have a couple of articles on that, go in a little more depth, and I may come back and, and revisit that topic some more. plan on doing some more of these broadcasts soon to try to get uh, some more uh, information out there on Shepherd's Chapel. Not a lot of people deal with them. Um, but again, you can go to my blog and find some stuff. I've also, if you go to mediafighter.org, I team up with Aaron Campbell. He's also a former Shepherd's Chapel student. And he, we've done a couple broadcasts. Uh, and we do a weekly podcast. I do a weekly podcast with him where we deal with many cult groups. But we've dealt with Shepherd's Chapel as well. And we've also done Mormonism and Islam. And you can go to mediafighter.org and look up some of those episodes there. He also had a, uh, a uh, an interview with Paul Stragini at Oracles of God, who also is a former student and speaks out against Shepherd's Chapel. And you can go to his his blog as well, which is, again, there's uh, mediafighter.org, which has the RSS feed, but you also have... Um, shepherdschapel.wordpress.com has has some he has some really good articles there and, and also my blog uh, I'll be posting these up on you can look at me look me up at Reform Thinker on SoundCloud we'll have a couple of my latest episodes up there you can also look uh, I'll try to get this posted on YouTube and I will uh, probably set up an iTunes subscription here soon but I'll let you guys know if we're going to get into iTunes and all that other stuff here soon. Anyway, it's uh, about all we have right now. So, uh, hey, this was great. I hope it's useful. If anybody has any questions or comments, you can reach me at colby.brayton at gmail.com. I'd love to talk to you about it. I'd love to, to if you have any comments, concerns about what I've said. If I, you know, if you want to critique me or whatever, hey, let's talk to you.